Open your Bibles to Luke and chapter 5. We are continuing in this amazing gospel, which we began uh, back in uh, December. Um, our, our title on our screen is, is, that, is, so that you may have certainty, which is what Luke promised to his good friend Theophilus. This is why I'm writing this gospel, is I want you to have certainty about your faith in Jesus Christ. But we've also subtitled this gospel, The Skeptic's Gospel, because that's what Luke and Theophilus, Greeks, non-Christians, non-Jews, pagans at the time were before they came to faith in Jesus Christ. And so Luke is laying this orderly account out so that skeptics, his good friend Theophilus, would have certainty about who Jesus is, that He is God in the flesh and that He is the Son of God. So read with me. I'm going to begin in verse 27. We're in our fourth story in this chapter, which is amazing. And today, this is kind of the conclusion to the where Luke has been leading us. So I'll read the passage, and then I'm going to pray one more time, and we'll dive in. Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 32, Luke wrote, After this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he arose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at, the, at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this day. Holy Spirit, thank you for inspiring Luke to record this account, as other gospel writers did. We thank you for the story about Levi, about Matthew. More importantly, we thank you about what it tells us about Jesus and why He has come, why He has come. So, uh, Lord, we pray today that as we dive into this passage, as we try to unpack this and understand, Holy Spirit, what you wanted Luke to say and how that was to be understood by the people in that day, but also us today, we pray that you would speak to us, illuminate our hearts and our minds so that we can receive your word. And I pray this in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. So as I, I think I mentioned, it was when we started Luke chapter 5 that uh, Luke, this was a paradigm shift. The, the, uh, there's been a couple in the gospel, but this was the big one where it's really moving forward and, and Jesus is moving out into his public ministry and there's rejection. It, it started in his home uh, synagogue in uh, Nazareth when he went back and he, and he preached that great sermon out of Isaiah and, and you know, he told them, I, I'm the fulfillment of this. I am that guy. I'm the one who's come to bring freedom to the captives. I'm come for you. And, and at first they loved his glorious words. They loved what he was saying. But after a while they realized he was talking about them. <laughs> Essentially he was talking about them being sinners. And they were like, whoa, 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 wait a second. We're the righteous. We're the ones in the synagogue. We're the ones here worshiping God. No, no, you're talking about the other people. And once they realized what he was talking about, well, they would have none of that. They actually drove him out of the city. They wanted to kill him. And so in Luke chapter 5, there's a huge shift that takes place. And I want to just review quickly the first few stories because it's important to our text for today that we see the building that Luke has gotten to here. It's really quite amazing. So first there was a story of Simon Peter, of course, and that miraculous catch of fish. Remember that? I mean, the large crowd that's on the shore and Jesus gets out in the boat and his voice echoes to them and they can hear this great sermon, right? And Peter sitting there right beside the Lord, Jesus, in the boat, is hearing this sermon 
And then Jesus tells them to cast out and, and to move out and cast his, his nets into the water. They've been fishing all night, and Peter's like, well, okay, because you say so, I will do it. And then they do it. Huge catch of fish. It's an amazing story. It's a great miracle. But what we learn from that story that's most important is at that point, Peter says to Jesus, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Not, thank you for the fish, let's go have some sushi. No, it's, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. It's the first time, the first use in the gospel of the word by anyone towards Jesus that they're a sinner about sin. So that's very significant. So Peter then is called by Jesus, and basically says to Peter, listen, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Good for you for repenting. Don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And he calls Peter, and Peter and his buddies all leave. And so what's interesting about that first story, that Peter is convicted of his sin, that sin is discussed, and he's convicted of it just being in the presence of Jesus. Jesus is speaking to the crowd. The miracle is an added bonus to the situation, but Peter is cut to the heart. He realizes who Jesus is. But also we notice, and this is the amazing thing, we notice the kind of people. This, Jesus starts calling his disciples here. And we notice that the kind of people that Jesus begins calling are nobodies. (laughs) These are fishermen, right? These guys really on the food chain, they're they're down here, really. They're not the high up elites. They haven't got MDivs. They didn't go to seminary. They're not Pharisees and scribes. They're certainly not going to be teaching in Sunday school or anywhere else in the church or in the synagogue. I mean, mean, they're, 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 (laughs) they're fishermen, you know, a little rough around the edges, you know. They, if they come to church or synagogue at all, they got blue jeans on and maybe a clean T-shirt. You know, that's about it. But Jesus looks at these guys and he says, elder material, apostles, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. Jesus can do that for us. So secondly, we have the story of the leper, right, who wanted Jesus to make him clean. A very touching, amazing story. It really is. It's, it's a beautiful story. This poor man was, was the outcasts of all outcasts, we learned. Unwelcome in the city, uh, in his family, in community. Certainly unwelcome in the synagogue. He couldn't get anywhere near anybody. What Jesus does is grant his wish and makes him both ceremonially and physically clean again. It's a beautiful story. But, but Jesus goes even lower And at this point, the religious people are starting to pay attention to Jesus. He goes even lower. And what did we see in that story? He reaches out and he touches this man as he heals him. Now, this was unheard of. This was unheard of. You just don't do that. And the report of that action, not that this leper was healed miraculously right in front of their faces completely, all the scabs, everything gone, any stumps that had been the result of his disease have been repaired with brand new fingers right there. No, that's not reported. What's reported is Jesus touched this unclean outcast. Horrible. Sinful. So what's most interesting really about the story is this. First, that Jesus would touch him is unheard of. But why? Well, because it was taught and believed that if you touched an unclean leper or anything that was deemed unclean, you then became unclean. But then the question is, but what if you're God? who he kind of said he had been, and who Luke has been presenting them to be. Well, if God touches something that is unclean, does it make God? No, it can't. 
And that was the whole paradigm shift that we saw in that story. It's actually in Jesus, that, in Jesus and even in our lives as we go with Christ, but we touch what Jesus touches now becomes clean. It's the whole reversal of the whole Old Testament system. It's a beautiful, beautiful, amazing picture. Well, next was the story, of course, of the paralytic man who's brought by his four buddies. They rip open the roof, and, and they drop him down in front of Jesus. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, we learned that story. Now, they've shown up because they've been hearing these reports of all these ridiculous things that this rabbi, this guy who claims to be the Messiah, is doing, touching unclean people. They've shown up, and they see and hear, and Jesus, in their minds, go way too far. Way too far. With the paralytic man hanging in front of Jesus, you remember the words? Jesus said, man, your sins are forgiven you. <laughs> He's paralyzed. Like, heal him, please, would you? I think that's what the four guys were thinking, but Jesus goes there. And of course, this is outrageous to the Pharisees as they question in their hearts, who is this who speaks blasphemies? They didn't speak this out loud. They're, they're, they're thinking these thoughts. It's in their hearts. Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can for, forgive sins but God alone? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, you remember how that turned out. Jesus knows their thoughts. He knows their hearts, even though they didn't say anything which I'm not sure they picked up on. And then he asks them a trick question. Remember that? It's kind of a, a trick question, which they also miss. He asks, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk? They, of course, think it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because, listen, it's hard to prove that. That's the trick. That's the trick. Jesus just exposed their hearts because the truth is it's much harder for God to forgive sins because in order for God to forgive sins, he had to die on the cross to go really low so that sins could be forgiven. So all three stories deal with sinners. Right? All three really are dealing with sinners at this point in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 5, as well as, listen, the kinds of people Jesus forgives, heals, and calls. Sinners, outcasts, not the religious. It's very interesting. The type of people the self-righteous Pharisees actually would have nothing to do with. The question then at this point in Luke's story and for the religious Pharisees has to be this. It's got to be this question. How low will this guy go? That's your sermon title for today. How low will Jesus go? I'm actually going to try to show you that in three points. And haven't been doing that in a while, but here's the three points. First, who responds? Secondly, how they respond. And thirdly, who will not respond? Who responds, how they respond, and who will not respond? So the answer to how low will he go is found is actually in this short story. That's why Luke is putting this. Actually, three of the four gospel writers record this story right after the paralytic story. So it's intentional. So number one, who responds? Let's look at the last verse because it is really the thesis statement of the chapter. It's the thesis statement of the chapter. Verse 32 says this, I have not come, look at these words, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So this is what Luke has been building towards really throughout this whole chapter. It actually started from the time, as I said, Jesus preached 
in his hometown in the synagogue where he offended all those who thought they were already the righteous ones, right? Remember when Jesus said that he was the fruition of Isaiah's prophecy, the anointed one, well, it offended them when they realized he was talking about them, that he had come for them, that they needed his forgiveness as much as anyone else. So they tried to kill him because he offended them. And when Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, what he's saying now is is that he's come for everyone. Listen, because you guys all know your Bibles. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? There is none righteous, the Scripture teaches us. But the problem is this. Listen, the problem is there are many who do not see themselves that way. There are many in our world today, many, sometimes even Christians, let's be careful, who don't see themselves that way, right? It's like, like who, me, a sinner? Like, compared to who? Those people? Compared to them? This verse is really the thesis of the Christian faith, and it could be read this way. I'm going to paraphrase it, and I'll put it on the screen later, but it could be read this way. The Lord Jesus Christ came to save the sinners, listen, who would repent, and only those who know that they are sinners will repent. Let me repeat that. The Lord Jesus Christ came to save the sinners who would repent, and only those who know that they are sinners will repent. The rest of Luke's gospel, and really every gospel, is about that. That's what it unpacks. That's what it wants to show us. Every single one of them wants to show us. And, and, and that's, the reason it, that's the reason why it's called good news, why they're called the gospel, because it's more than just a recording of the story of Jesus' life. It, it's, uh, it's about how sinners get saved. <laughs> that's the whole point of it. There's no, there's no reason to come to the Word of God, to come to the Bible, to come to church, to come to Christianity, if it isn't because you believe, you know, you need to be saved. It's not positive mental attitude. A few extra tools on your tool belt to help you have a better life now. (laughs) Well, it will, but first we must deal with this issue of coming to Christ. The gospel is a constant call for sinners to repent. So Jesus was saying then, and the Holy Spirit is saying now, that the Christian life isn't for people who think they're pretty good, right? I know most of you know that, but we need a refresher on this. Who think they're right, it's for people who know they're not right. People who know that things are not the way that they should be and that they, as much as anyone else, are responsible for that fact. It's for sinners. The church isn't for people who think they're righteous. It's for people who know they're not. You're welcome. (laughs) Jesus is also saying this. If you think you're righteous and good, I can't do anything for you. By extension, that's what he's saying. I can't help you. So at this point, Luke's gospel, there's a question that I'm sure Theophilus or any of those present when Jesus forgave the sins of Peter, the leper, the paralytic. And that question's got to be this. Just who qualifies to have their sins forgiven? I mean, what are the qualifications of a person who can have their sins forgiven by Jesus? How low will he go, really? Well, the Pharisees weren't ready for this low, believe me. The first verse in our story today, the first two verses are these. 
After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. So Luke tells us that Jesus uh, is walking along the road. This, the, again, this chapter has been about, you know, on another occasion, and then there was this, and it's an orderly account, mostly chronologically, but it's really leading and building to a conclusion of his story. He enters the city, and he notices this tax collector at the booth, at the entrance to the city, right, whose name is Levi, which is Matthew, doing his job, and he simply says to him, simply, follow me, Right? Just follow me. And we're told he does. He leaves everything, and it sounds simple. I'm sure you got it, and we can just move on, right? No. There's so much going on here. There's so much going on here. Tax collectors. <laughs> Tax collectors. I struggled this week. I was trying to think of a, an appropriate analogy, comparison in our world and our culture today to exactly what was going on in that day or, or, or how the Pharisees and their fellow Jews really felt about tax collectors in their day. And, and there really isn't a good one. You guys know me. I'm, I'm reasonably good sometimes at coming up with those kind of comparisons. But I, there isn't really one that's a direct comparison. But suffice to say that they would be on par with how some of us in our world today feel about murderous drug dealers, right? Right? Um, Cult leaders who convince people to drink Kool-Aid. Or Hollywood producers. Really, there's no, no matter how you might feel about Revenue Canada or our government of taxation today, which really there's no comparison. Words that might, we might use today that the people in that day, in whether it was Aramaic, Hebrew, or Greek, might use to describe them might be words like this. Scum, trash, lowlifes, crooks, extortionists, traitors. None of these are very nice, right? And yet, and yet, Jesus sees Levi in the tax booth, and he says, you, follow me. The Greek literally suggests this, you, you better follow me. <laughs> it's more along that line. It's like, it's not, a, it's not a suggestion. One word that you would never hear as an adjective to describe tax collectors in that day was the word honest, <laughs> right? It wouldn't be used. I mean, if you remember in Luke chapter 3, tax collectors were coming out to John the Baptist, right? And they were coming out to be baptized for the baptism of repentance, right? And many of those tax collectors that were coming out to John the Baptist, they asked him, what do we have to do to, to be forgiven or to seek repentance, to prove our repentance? What do we need to do? And his words were them, to them were really simple. It's kind of like a Sermon on the Mount thing, right? He said to them, well, how about you collect no more than you are authorized to do? That's what he said to them, right? It's, you know, in other words, he's saying, can you just be honest? Actually, that was hard for them because the whole system was set up in order for them to make their money. They, they had to be crooked. They had to be. And they made a lot of money, and a lot of money, in the same way that some are attracted to crime and especially selling drugs is because it appears easy and the returns could be huge. That's why they were attracted to do this. Now, to understand just how low all Jewish people thought tax collectors were, we need to understand a few things about who they were and what they actually did. Uh, they were the lowest, scummiest traders because, first of all, they were Jewish. 
That's why the Jewish people felt that way. But so did the Gentile Romans that were being collected and taxed by them, but especially the Jewish people, who is really the context that we're speaking about here today. The Romans, listen, the Romans who were, of course, the governing party and the rulers in that day, they knew exactly, really, a thing or two about subversion. They really did. They knew this. If you can get one of the people you're trying to overlord and control to turn on their own people, you're halfway there. You're halfway to controlling the people. And what you got was someone who knew exactly how to get taxes out of their own people, a fellow Jew. You see, in those days, one of the things we need to understand is a study of Jewish history will tell you this, uh, that the Pharisees actually encouraged, kind of quietly, in the synagogue, in the side, in the homes, they kind of encouraged the idea that you should cheat on your taxes. Because from their perspective, is all you were doing is not only it's because we have our fellow Jews who've turned on us, which is terrible, and we shouldn't really help them, because look what they've done. They're traitors, lowlifes, but because they're helping get money to these pagan dogs, these Romans. And obviously, we're, we're helping God if we don't pay taxes. That's, that was their thinking. And, and we know that that was their, their thinking because one of their scribes eventually asks Jesus, and Matthew himself records it, where they come to Jesus. And just imagine a little smirk on their face when they're asking this question or kind of like trying to trick Jesus. They say, tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? with all of their plebs behind them while they're asking Jesus that question? Because they'd already been teaching their people, no, you can cheat. You don't have to pay because, look, these guys are scum. They're lowlifes. They've turned on us. And they're only helping these dogs who God clearly doesn't love and doesn't want to have the money. So in the days that we are studying here, there were three different kinds of tax collectors, three different classifications, basically. There were tax collectors who dealt primarily uh, with property-oriented taxes, others with income and business taxes, and still others were dealing with everything else, which uh, typically included roads, bridges, toll taxes, this kind of thing. And, and believe me, you know, we have some creative ways today to tax people, right? They were incredible in those days how they would tax people. I mean, they had road taxes, and really that's what... Matthew was doing. He's at the toll. He's at the booth getting into the city. And he would come out sometimes, and this is what they would do. They'd actually come out, and they'd, it's like when you kind of come back in from the U.S., right? You come in, and sometimes they come out, and they want to look through your vehicle. But what they would do is if you had a donkey, and you were pulling a cart, well, there's a, whoa. Well, there's a access to the city tax. There's a roads tax, but there's also now a cart tax, tax, right? And then they figured out, well, wait a second. Your cart has how many axles? Oh, two taxles, axles. Oh, okay. So that, another tax for the axles. Oh, and it has four wheels? So there was, I mean, they were really, I'm not making this up. They, they were really creative on how they could, they could really take advantage of all of their people by taxing every little part of the road or whatever they were doing. It was incredible. So the system was basically very straightforward, and it completely encouraged crime, extortion, and even gangster-like threats like, I'll break your legs if you don't pay your taxes. If you were the type of person who didn't mind lying, cheating, stealing, and taking full advantage of others, you were perfect for this job. You were the perfect candidate for this job. And here's how you made your money, right? The basic system was you made the difference between what Herod expected and what he would pass on to Rome, what they set as the tax. There were no rules, no set amount for the markup that you could make. So if the tax that Herod wanted was 50 bucks, 
If you could squeeze 75 or 100 or 125, there was no limit. You could base it on each individual, and they did. They did. You could squeeze out as much as you wanted. So it's not surprising, is it? I mean, would you like these kind of people? If they were in your life every day, they were despised. But listen, at some point in his life, Matthew decided, you know what? I don't care about my family, about my people, about my God, about the synagogue, about being there. I don't care about that anymore. I'm ready to leave all that behind because, well, the upside for me personally is just too big to turn down. And so he must have decided that at some point, and that's what he did. And so you see in that world and culture, especially in the Judaism that prevailed at the time, the idea that someone would turn their backs on their people, on God, that someone would stoop that low, be that kind of person, well, in their minds and based on the religion that they had built, not that God had given to them, that person was, hear this, unforgivable. There was no salvation for that person. That was the point. That was the point. So then one day, Matthew is sitting in this tax booth, and he's noticed by this new rabbi, whose name is Jesus. The word saw here implies an intense stare. And he stated to him, follow me. Can you believe that? I mean, can you believe that when Pharisees and religious leaders saw that and saw this, the guy, they knew this guy is following Jesus? How low will he go? I love this picture so much because of what we don't see Jesus doing. We don't see Jesus saying to Matthew, oh, hey, listen, by the way, if you can clean yourself up a little bit and listen, uh, uh, but you know what, I I could probably use somebody with your gifts and your talents because at some point in time, uh, this guy Judas, who I'm going to, he's going to be one of my apostles, we're going to lose him and we're going to need somebody who's got some money-keeping skills, right? Like, he, he doesn't offer Matthew an opportunity to use his previous skills. It's nothing like that whatsoever. No. Think about this. He had to have seen something else when he looked at Levi. Remember, with the Pharisees in the room and the paralytic, he knew what they were thinking. He saw their hearts. He saw their hearts. And I believe this scripture is teaching us that when he saw Matthew, he saw his heart. And he saw a man who was ready to repent. And that's why he called him. He called him. So we don't know the details, but at some point, Matthew must have taken stock of his life, right? He must have been doing this for a while. And as we're going to see, he made a fair bit of money at this trade. But at some point, he must have been thinking, it wasn't worth it. It just wasn't worth it. I'm hated. Not only that, I'm far from God. And I can't get back. Nobody will provide for me an opportunity, a way back. He's broken based on what he's done and was doing. And, and at some point, the Spirit of God must have began a work in his heart, a regeneration of his heart. And then Jesus arrives. And he sees him. And he knows who's calling him. And he follows him. So how do we know that Matthew had come to this point in his life? How do we know that? It doesn't really say it in this text. Well, actually, we do. 
Because it says, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. I already said that he'd left everything before, right? In this case, you leave tax collecting. Okay, now you have the Romans not happy with you, right? You're going back into a people group that don't really want you, like the Apostle Paul later did, right? You're going back into that people group. He's leaving everything to follow Jesus. Everything to follow Jesus. I mean, Peter left his fishing boats, right? But as we know from John 21, he he could go back to that, right? There's no way for Matthew to go back to this, ever. And so we know this is a big move and a move of faith for Matthew. So who responds to Jesus? Who responds to Jesus? Well, in this story, it's the lowest of the low. Gospel. Pretty good news, right? Lowest of the low, which is really all sinners, which is exactly who Jesus said he came for. And here I'll put that on screen. That paraphrases this truth. The Lord Jesus Christ came to save sinners who would repent, and only those who know they are sinners will repent. Who responds? Somebody just like Matthew. For the poor in spirit shall inherit the kingdom of God. Number two, how they respond. This is awesome. Back to verse 28. Again, I believe, yes, it's not a typo. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. Right? So Matthew responds by leaving his old life behind, as we said. He's found freedom from his sins in Jesus, and there's no going back. And so my question for all of us here today is, have you done that? Really? Have you done it? I I had to search this a little bit this week. I honestly did, and I'm going to continue. I mean, have you ever heard of this saying before, by the way? It's something called easy believism. This is, this is kind of ep- epidemic in our church for the past 40, 50, 60 years based on the, the way that the gospel or how you come to Jesus has been taught in churches and in Sunday schools in some places, uh, which is unfortunate. It's been the primary mode of really evangelism church for a long time. It goes like this. All that you have to do is just pray this prayer, ask Jesus to come into your heart, and you're in. Ready to be baptized? There's no real confession or acknowledgement of sin. There's no repentance or like clearly complete reversal, 180 degree turning from sin. And here's what the result is. The result is of that kind of confession of faith, that kind of easy believism is half-hearted following and a stunted, stunted faith, if at all. I mean, many Christians, I, I've, over the years, any pastor has counseled many Christians who are continuing to struggle to live the Christian life, and it's partly because they don't understand you can't (laughs) unless you've been fully regenerated and healed and are living in Christ and the Holy Spirit. Only He can help you to live this amazing Christian life. So it's a struggle. But not Matthew or Peter, James, Andrew, and John. Any of the men that we read about and women in the New Testament, it's always about immediately, leave, right? everything, and follow. That's what we read about their life. It's amazing. But there's another really awesome example here in this text, isn't there? 
an awesome example of how great sinners, uh, what they do, how they respond, right? And, and what they do is they, they immediately invite all, right, all of their friends, all of their other friendly sinners, all of the people within their circle of influence, they especially from their previous life, to what? Feast on Jesus. Like they're on fire to do that, right? Like that's all they want to do is invite people. And so we clearly see really in this text also, as I mentioned earlier, how, how rich Matthew probably was. A very lucrative tax collecting business for him. He's got a big house. He puts on an expensive feast. He might not be able to do this much longer, obviously, because he's not going to have any income. And he invites all of his tax collector friends. And listen, notice this. He doesn't start preaching at them. He just says, come to dinner. I want you to meet this guy who saved me from being a tax collector and a sinner. He invites them to meet Jesus. I love that. Also notice he hasn't invited who he hasn't, pardon me, who he has not invited to this feast, right? He hasn't invited any of the Pharisees, any of the religious leaders. Obviously, they're not his friends. And, and the truth is, as we're going to see, and we should know by now, they don't want to be there. They, they don't see any reason for them to be there. But who's the guest of honor in Matthew's house? Well, the very Son of God, the Messiah, who's come to take away the sins of the world, is in there. And who's he with? Well, these people. What I really love about this picture is that Matthew, think about it, from the get-go, from the moment immediately that he starts following Jesus, he's on mission with Jesus. I mean, isn't the mission field right there in his house? How often are we doing this, guys? <laughs> Unbelieving neighbors, coworkers. And how, how often are we inviting them into our house? How many non-Christian friends do you have that you're inviting into your house who are from your, like, when you went to high school with, who you need to reconnect with, whatever it might be? How many are we doing? How often are we doing this? And when we do get them in our house, what are we talking about? Canucks, life, the weather, Mexico, no Jesus. I, I don't know. Sometimes I wonder, I mean, I get caught in doing the same thing because we love to entertain, right? But at the end of the day, what's the point? This is the mission field. It's exactly how to respond to Jesus, shown to us right here in the life of Matthew. Leave your past life, get on mission with Jesus, and never, ever look back. So the question is, maybe you can talk about this in a small group this week, is where is your mission field individually, personally? Where is it? Who are they? Number three, who will not respond? I'm going to add two things to that. That might sound harsh, but think about it. Who will not respond? Sometimes ever answer many. Narrow gate, wide road. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled, grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink? Two important words. That's called having dinner and having fellowship with your unsaved friends and co-workers and neighbors, on and on it goes. With tax collectors and sinners. I mean, the thesis verse, which we've already looked at, essentially tells us that Jesus, Jesus rejects this righteous attitude. He rejects the righteous. James, the half-brother of Jesus, uh, quoting Proverbs, wrote, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's the gospel. It's the whole message of the book. 
It's fantastic. The Pharisees and their scribes were outside and nearby, obviously, as the disciples were leaving, and they complained to them. That word grumble is like they're complaining to them, right? They're complaining at them, really. Maybe they're thinking they can at least talk some sense into their Jewish brothers. Like, I mean, you might just be fishermen or whatever, but, but you're Jewish. So we might be able to talk some sense into you about following this, this crazy guy. And the complaint is this. Listen, you know it's wrong to eat and drink, to have fellowship with all these lowlifes. We certainly never would. Don't you want to be like us and remain clean? Hmm. And that's what convicts them, isn't it? it? What makes it impossible for them to respond to Christ? They think they are without sin. They think they're better than other people, at least that they have less sin than other people, but for the most part, they think they are without sin. It's terrible. They, they thought that through their outward acts and appearances that they were clean and acceptable God. They didn't understand the gospel one little bit. Well, <laughs> again, with Jesus, he's not far away, and this time he hears what they're having to say, and he responds to them. It says in verses 31 and 32, and Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is such a simple analogy, but it's stinging. It's stinging. He's saying, you think you are well to these religious Pharisees in front of everybody, by the way, that was at the dinner, but also who are on the streets, who've been hanging around with the the Pharisees, waiting to just jump on these disciples. You think you are well, that you do not need a doctor? Well, fine. I didn't come for you. I came for those who know they're sick and that they need a doctor. But he's also saying, if you know that these sinners that you dislike so much are sick, why are you criticizing me and my disciples for going to them? Why? And and, and let me put on top of that, why aren't you going to them, really? Why won't you go to them? It's marvelous, really, how Matthew records this moment because he adds, not adds himself personally, but he records something that Jesus also said at this time to them, which is really beautiful. He says this, Jesus' words to these Pharisees. Go and learn what this means. Now, as a Jewish rabbi, any of these Pharisees, this is exactly the language they would use in Pharisee class, right? In synagogue. They would say, go and learn. Why? Hosea 6.6. They would quote the Old Testament. Go and learn what the Bible says, what the Word of God says. And Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus is essentially saying to them, look guys, I I never wanted your sacrifices. They're not what saves you. They're not what makes you clean. I am. Their response should have been, and the goal of atonement and forgiveness for your sins and my sins has always been to create a softened heart that seeks compassion, mercy, and grace, not sacrifice, not religion, 
They were being told by Jesus in very simple and direct language, I'm here for those sinners that you won't eat with, that you won't go to. Wow. So listen, friends, you know that the Pharisees hated Jesus more and more after this, right? I mean, this is where they start to pick up the plot. We've got to kill this guy. Enough of this. But, but listen, let's not limit our understanding of who the Pharisees represent. It isn't just religious, self-righteous, holier-than-thou Jews or Christians. It isn't just that group of people. No, it's anyone, hear this, who denies they are sick, who denies that they are a sinner, who needs a Savior, who sees no need for a physician, who sees no need for Jesus to die on the cross and in their place for their sins. You know, I think one of the things that that happens for a lot of us in our faith is we, um, rather than going to the outcasts, rather going to the tax collectors and sinners and inviting all of those people into our homes and really inviting that, we want to, we want to, we want to find those people who are really, really hard to reach with apologetics, you know, like the, these, these atheists, right? And, and people who we want to have these debates with because, boy, if we can win that guy, if we can win that woman, I mean, that's going to be amazing. I mean, God will be really happy with me if I can get to those people, right? They may never respond. They may never respond. I mean, notice, neither Jesus nor his disciples respond further to these types. They turn back to the mission with the Pharisees, continuing to follow, looking for more reasons to stop Jesus. Look, like those days, no one today likes being called a sinner. I'm sure none of you in this room this morning were really appreciating that word being used so often. Nobody likes it. I understand that. I don't like it. Or or, or seeing their activity or behavior or being told it is sin. Nobody. But the problem is this. Jesus can't help you, can't help them if they won't. So what do you do? What do you and I do who know that we are sinners, who who are willing to repent and have forgiven, been forgiven by Christ, need to do? What can we do? Preach the Word. (laughs) The whole counsel of God. It's not just my job. It's our job. Take it to them, right? We must show everyone we know how sinful the human heart really is, and all we need to do is start with ourselves by telling our own testimony of how we responded knowing we were sinners to God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. That's all we need to do. Tell everyone you know why you responded. Demonstrate your faith by inviting all the sinners in your past and present life to feast on Jesus. One more thing. Maybe, maybe, listen. Warn those whose hearts are hardening to not let their pride keep them from seeing Jesus. It's not about you convincing them, me convincing them but about them missing Jesus. So how low will Jesus go? (laughs) Well, he saved Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and also Paul, (laughs) who after 30 years described himself as the worst of all sinners. After 30 years of following Jesus and planting churches, he's still describing himself that way. And listen, how low will he go? Well, he saved you. He saved me. That's how low he'll go. Listen, we've we've heard this before, but the gospel of Christ is so counter to our culture, isn't it? The the gospel is so counter. It's it's about um, the the way up first is down. The way up with God is down. Humble yourself. Humble ourselves. 
And of course, Jesus is always the best model. He came down from heaven to earth to be a man, to live the perfect life that we cannot live. And then he went down further. He humbled himself to die on a wicked Roman cross, to be nailed to that. And then he went farther down into the grave so that on the third day he could rise and welcome us into his kingdom, to live with him forever, to raise us up, to be with him. I'm certain that Matthew is grateful. You know, one of the things, I'll close with this about Matthew that is interesting. We don't read, other than his gospel, what he wrote, but we don't read anything from Matthew. <laughs> we don't read any of his words. He doesn't talk. He doesn't say anything. He's not like Paul, I say this. Right? He doesn't, he, but what a story. What a man that Jesus called. In that day, the lowest of the low. That's how low Jesus will go. That's good news, amen? Pray with me, would you?